0: We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. John chapter number 3, please. John 3. Here's the famous chapter that has to do with being born of the Spirit, being born again, being saved by the grace of God. And I'd like to speak to you about the new birth uh, in the message tonight. I want you to search your heart out and, and ponder your experience of the grace of God and to measure that experience by the standard of the Bible and by the truth of the Bible to see if indeed you have been born again by the grace of God. You know, we have a lot of false ideas these days about what the new birth actually involves. I'd like to remind you that the new birth is not many things that may be good. For example, the new birth is not a denomination. Now, you might be a Baptist, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're born again. It could mean that you're born again. But if you are born again, you're not born again because you're a Baptist, that's for sure. No. The new birth is not a denomination. Then again, the new birth is not information. You may be an educated person, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're born again. You know, I think sometimes in our day we get the idea that if a man has a college degree or if he has postgraduate work, then he qualifies as an uh, outstanding Christian. And we usually make him a, a teacher of the adult class or superintendent of the Sunday school or we make him the chairman of the deacon board. But that uh, information is good. But that doesn't necessarily mean that a man that may be highly informed and greatly informed as far as scholastic training is concerned, is born again. It could mean that, but not necessarily does it mean that. And so I'd remind you also that the new birth is not isolation. You may separate from every questionable thing of the world. And I believe God's people ought to do that. I preach that in the morning hour. And I preached out of the sincerity of my own heart that God's people are different. We are to be different. We're to be different in our uh, acquaintances. We're to be different in our social life. We're to be different in our environment. We're, we're to be different in the, the uh, company we select and elect to, uh, uh, to choose. We're to be different in every avenue of life. Therefore, if a man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Old things pass away. That's right. You get a man born again, he changes his hitching post. And he becomes separated, isolated from the former companions, his drinking companions, his card playing companions, his dancing companions, uh, his uh, stealing uh, companions, all that he separates from. Now that's good, and I'd recommend an isolated position. I think God's people ought to be separated from the things of the world, the questionable things of the world. But I've known some people uh, who were isolated that I question whether they're really born again or not. I don't know of anybody more isolated than a Catholic priest. He's so isolated until he's not even allowed to have a wife. He's so isolated until he doesn't even have children or grandchildren, isn't that a tragedy? That a normal man would live a lifetime without having a wife. A normal man will live a lifetime without having children. God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. And I mean, I think that's a Catholic priest as well as a Baptist preacher. God, uh, God knew that a man needs a good companion, a good wife. And a Baptist preacher enjoys children just like anybody else. I feel sorry for Catholic priests, And there's nobody in the world more isolated than a Catholic priest are. But I doubt if, uh, I doubt if they know anything about being born again. So the new birth is not isolation. And then I've also that the new birth is not a demonstration. Uh, we've seen people that could rejoice and shout and praise the Lord. And all that's good. We believe in that. We believe a person ought to... Uh, uh, rejoice in the Lord, again I say rejoice, rejoice evermore, rejoice because your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, uh, don't rejoice because the devils are in subjection to you. You remember when Jesus sent our disciples two by two uh, to bear witness uh, that he was the Messiah, he said uh, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, uh, cast out devils and raise the dead. Now that's a tremendous uh, commission. And uh, the 12 disciples were given that commission, and they went out to heal the sick and cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and cast out devils. They did that in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when they came back, they were rejoicing that even the devils were in subjection to them. And the Lord Jesus said, don't rejoice that the devils are in subjection to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I believe that it's all right for a person to rejoice and to say amen, praise the Lord, that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Somebody said, well, if you're not winning so many souls, you ought not to rejoice. Well, you don't find that in the Bible. That's man's idea. You don't find that. In fact, the Bible says rejoice because your name is written down. If yours is the only one in your family, if mama's lost and dad is lost and wife is lost and children are lost and you're the only saved person in your family, you still ought to rejoice. I think you ought to pray for your loved ones that are unsaved. I think you ought to bear witness to them and try to get them right with God. But Jesus said, rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you're the only person in your family that's born again, you ought to thank God for it and rejoice about it. But I've seen all kinds of demonstrations in my life. Some demonstrations I don't approve of. Others I do approve of. I've I've been in services where I, I couldn't put my approval upon everything that transpired. Now, and I've been in other services where I thought everything was just uh, right up, you see, right up to par. Now, demonstration is all right uh, if it's scriptural, if it comes out of a heart that's clean and dedicated and separated from the things of the world. I believe that a man that's living right ought to shout right. And if he's not living right, he ought to shut up. If a man doesn't tithe, he ought not to shout. If a man doesn't witness, he ought not to shout. If a man's not separated, he ought not to demonstrate. I say a demonstration is not necessarily salvation. I've seen some that I think were done by people who didn't have salvation. Yes. Now, a demonstration could be a wonderful thing, but it's not always an indication that a man is born again. Now, all these things that I've said are good within their place, but then none of those within themselves are the end. They are the means to the end. They could be an indication that an end has been arrived at, They could be an indication that you've been born again, but not necessarily within themselves are they a genuine foolproof indication of a born again experience. Now, what is it to be born again? Be born again, to be saved by the grace of God. Now, there's a lot of ideas about it. Somebody says, well, get religion. Well, now that's not necessarily enough. Uh, You might get their own kind of religion. The world's filled up with religion. I wouldn't recommend you get the Hindu religion, I wouldn't recommend you become a Mohammedan. I wouldn't recommend that you become a Buddhist. I wouldn't recommend a lot of religion. So I wouldn't say that getting religion is being born again. Not at all. Now if you get the right kind of religion, the religion of the Lord Jesus, washed in the precious blood, and saved by grace divine, I've got no complaint. But if you get the wrong kind, then you're no better off with religion than you were without religion, you see. Religion is not the answer. And a lot of other things are not the answer. Herbert W. Armstrong says that you're born again when you're resurrected from the dead. And after you die, and they put your body in the ground, it's like an animal. You die like a dog. And they put your body in the ground, and that's the end of you until the resurrection morning. And when God gets you up on the resurrection morning, that's being born again. And he says the Lord Jesus was born again on the third day when he came out of the grave. How you like that? And there's supposed to be some people that are intellectual that believe that kind of stuff. I don't believe that. I don't accept that. I don't think the new birth is that at all. What is the new birth? And that's the thing that I want to talk about tonight and preach to you for a moment about in this message. What is a Bible born again experience? Now it can be a reality and it ought to be a reality. And God have mercy upon you if you face the uncertainty of the future without the assurance of a born-again experience now let's read a verse or two from john and chapter number three there was a man of the pharisees now the pharisees were not saved people they were religious people but they were not saved people the first time the pharisees are mentioned in the bible is in matthew chapter number three and verse number seven and in that verse john calls them a generation of snakes now you don't call saved people snakes So I take it that the Pharisees are what John called them. They were unsaved people, and John called them a generation of servants. And so the Pharisees are lost people. Now, in, in John 3 and verse 1, there was a man of that group whose name was Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, the Pharisees were Jews. They had a good heritage. They said, we have Abraham as our father. They said to John the baptizer, who do you think you are? Well, look at you with that leather girdle about your loins, uh, eating wild locusts and honey. Who do you think you are? They said, we have Abraham as our father. They gloried in their heritage. And all the glory of their heritage is absolutely correct because their father was Abraham. I mean, as far as the flesh is concerned, their father was Abraham. And they gloried in that fact. But I don't think a Pharisee that ever lived in the days of our Lord knew the grace of God until they got born again. A Pharisee is as lost as he can be, and I take it, therefore, that Nicodemus is a lost man. At least we know the Pharisees that came to John in Matthew 3 were lost people, and John called them a generation of vipers. But there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a very important man, no doubt, among the Jews in Jerusalem. Had you lived in this ancient day, you probably would have heard of Mr. Nicodemus. He probably lived in one of the nicest homes inside the ancient wall city. And everybody knew about Mr. Nicodemus. He might have been a merchant. Most Jews are. They merchandise in something. They're either selling goods or selling dollars. Jews always have either goods in their on their back or dollars in their pocket, one or the other. And Nicodemus probably was a merchant there in Jerusalem. And people bought their clothing or their shoes or their food, or other commodities from Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews, an outstanding man is this man, Nicodemus. But the same came to Jesus by night. Now actually we don't understand why Nicodemus came to the Lord by night. Somebody said Nicodemus was ashamed of Jesus. That's speculation, you really don't know that, nor do I. Somebody said Nicodemus is very busy. He had no other time but to come to Jesus at night. Again, you don't know that, nor do I. You can speculate that, but you really don't know why Nicodemus came to the Lord by night. But we do know that by night, he came to Jesus. And when he came to the Lord, he said, Rabbi, master, teacher, is what the word means. Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do the miracles I doest, except God be with him. Now, Nicodemus had been in Jerusalem long enough to have become acquainted with many rabbis. I would imagine that Nicodemus knew every rabbi for 20 or 25 or 30 years back. He probably knew every living rabbi in Jerusalem in that day. And he'd probably heard many of them teach the Old Testament schools in the synagogue. And when he met the Lord, he said, Rabbi, you're different. You're different. We know that you are a teacher come from God. You are a rabbi that came from God. And the reason I'm convinced is because of the miracles that you do. Now, the the Lord, uh, his whole life was characterized by miracles. From the time he was baptized of John in Jordan River until he dies upon the cross. His entire ministry is characterized by miracles. And evidently, Nicodemus had come in contact with some of these miracles. He might have known somebody that was healed, and the Lord healed many. He might have known some that were cleansed of leprosy. And the Lord cleansed many. He might have known some that were resurrected from the dead. And no doubt the Lord Jesus resurrected many from the dead. We, because of the miracles thou doest, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do what you do. There's never been a rabbi, he's saying, in all the history of Jerusalem that can do what you do. And I'm persuaded, said Nicodemus, that you are from God. Now, I don't know whether you notice the complimentary things that Nicodemus says about the Lord in verse number two or not. But he pays the Lord a high compliment, doesn't he? He speaks highly of the Savior. He compliments the Lord Jesus highly. And you would have thought the Lord would have said, Nicodemus, I really appreciate these nice and kind things that you're saying about me. Oh, you might have thought the Lord would have said, Nicodemus, I appreciate your attitude toward me. I appreciate the fact that there's one Pharisee in Jerusalem that's not on my trail. And so far as I know, Nicodemus was the only one in all the city that was was not hounding and plaguing the trail of our Lord. The rest of them soon began to take counsel together how they might destroy the Lord. Or how they might trap the Lord or catch him in some words that he might speak. that That they might indict the Lord. But the Lord overlooks these complimentary things. He makes no mention of them. And I think the reason the Lord makes no mention of the nice things that Nicodemus says in verse number two is because the Lord Jesus knows the real crutch of the matter and the real problem at hand. And so abruptly in verse three, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now you can get in the kingdom of heaven without being born again. But you can't get into the kingdom of God without being born again. Now we've learned a long time ago at Tabernacle that there's a great difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is God's earthly dominion, Christendom. The church visible is the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven you've got wise and foolish virgins sleeping together. You have tears and wheat growing together. You have faithful and slothful working together in the kingdom of heaven. But you don't have that in the kingdom of God. There's no one in the kingdom of God except those that have been born of God's spirit into God's kingdom. For we're all born of one spirit into one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is clear in that matter. And so Jesus said Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he can't get into the kingdom of God. Now, evidently Nicodemus got into the sect of the Pharisees without being born again. That was no standard, that was no problem. Any Pharisee could become a Pharisee without being born again. But no Pharisee could become a child of God without being born again. Now most anybody can join a Baptist church. And I'd recommend if you're born again that you join a Baptist church. But I I have, I'm sure, received members at Tabernacle and probably baptize them who are not saved by the grace of God. Now, I don't recommend that. And I'd recommend that we, uh, we bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. I, I, don't, I don't think baptism is something to be taken lightly. I don't think baptism is to be administered casually. I believe the candidates for baptism ought to be scrutinized carefully and questioned fairly. I'm not in the business of baptizing people for the sake of numbers. Never have been, and not now. I'm not interested in that. But I am interested in baptizing people who bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. And they are the only ones. But in spite of our philosophy, I'm sure that I've baptized many down through the years that was not saved. And they are members of our church If they were to die tomorrow, the newspapers would report members of Tabernacle Baptist Church and the pastor would be conducting the funeral and Brother Aiken would be singing. We'd probably have the funeral right here in the church. Now that ought not to be. I don't have one member I don't want, but I want all the members saved, you see. But alas, we've got some members who are not saved, I'm sure. Now you can become a Pharisee without being born again, but you can't get into the kingdom of God without being born again. I don't care who you are. Preacher's son, preacher's daughter, preacher himself, deacon, singer, I don't care who you are. If you get into God's kingdom, you're birthed by God's spirit into that body. And there's no other way to get in. And you're not going to fool anybody either. I get sometimes amused hearing people talk about St. Peter meeting you at the gate. And he'll unlock the gate and let you in. Now, St. Peter hadn't got a thing in the world to do with it. Not a thing. In fact, I wouldn't even call him saint if I was you. That's Roman Catholicism. Call him Peter the apostle. That's what he called himself. And I'd just call him Peter the apostle. Peter will not let you in the eastern gate, any other gate. He has no key to let you in either. Peter gets in just like me and you by being born of God's spirit into God's family, you see. And verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man, be born again. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus is naive. He's a man. He's probably past middle age. But he's naive. He's unlearned. And he says in verse number four, how can a man be born when he's an old man? And he goes further than I'd recommend you go. If I was as naive as Nicodemus... I think I'd keep my mouth shut. And if you're that naive, I don't think I'd say too much because Nicodemus sure revealed his ignorance when he said, Can a man enter the second time into his mother's womb? How earthly, how natural, how naive, how unlearned Nicodemus is in the simple, basic, elementary facts of eternal life. He brings them out of the new birth down to the level of the physical, and talks about being born another time physically. Well, anybody would know that couldn't be done. You never get but one physical birth, never. And the, the physical birth you now have can never be altered or never be exchanged or never be redone. Some of it's overdone, but none of it redone. I think I'm one of those that maybe got a double dose And some of the rest of you here tonight have overdone it, but nobody can do it again. You've got what you are, and you'll always keep what you've got. And there's nobody that can be born of the flesh twice. And yet that's what Nicodemus is talking about in verse number four. How can a man be born when he's an old man? Look at the gray in my hair. Look at my skin. It's wrinkled. I'm past middle age. And you talk about me being born again. How simple. How naive. the average junior Sunday school boy or girl at Tabernacle would know as much about being born again as Nicodemus demonstrates in that verse. Well the Lord made no reply to that either but he comes back in verse number five and again says verily verily I say unto thee except a man be born of water and of the spirit He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. First, you can't see the kingdom of God. Second, you can't enter into the kingdom of God, except a man be born of water and the Spirit. Now, there's been a controversy since the day of our Lord about what the water is in verse 5. And I don't think I'll settle it tonight, but I want to say what I've said many times and what I sincerely affirm That the water in verse 5 is the word of God. In other places of the Bible, the scriptures are referred to as water. Ephesians 5 27, washed by the word of God, we're told. In the living letter translation, it says, Washed by baptism. When the world they got that for Ephesians 5:27, I've never been able to figure out. It says clearly in the King James washed. By the word of God. So uh, water is a type and symbol of the word of God. And I think the Lord is talking to Nicodemus about that in verse 5. a man be born of the word. Uh, the hearing of faith. So then faith cometh by hearing. How does hearing come? By the word of God. How can they hear except to be a preacher? How can they preach except to be called of God and sent out? To preach. How beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel of peace. For it pleased God to save those that would believe the gospel. That by the preaching of the gospel to save those that would believe it. 1 Corinthians 1 and 21. So the water is the word of God. Now if the water is the word, how important that men hear the word of God in order to be saved. So far as I'm concerned, I don't think there's anything in the world more important than the preaching of the gospel. It's the only way in the world a man can be saved. I don't care how hungry you may be for salvation. I don't care how long you might have been seeking. You'll not get saved until somebody with the preaching of the word or with personal uh, 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 witnessing to you takes the Bible and shows you how to be saved according to the word of God, you see faith cometh by the word of god and men can't be saved apart from the hearing of faith the hearing of the gospel oh how we must preach it and teach it and proclaim it day in and day out but there's a second operation in the new birth the word and the spirit the spirit gives birth to you into god's family born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible Uh, That incorruptible seed, again, is the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, you see. Born of the Spirit into God's family. Baptized of one Spirit into one body, we're told in the Scriptures. Now, except a man have this experience, being born of the water and born of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, let me say this. You didn't accidentally become saved. If you're saved tonight and really born again, it's not an accident. It's a carefully planned procedure. And God supervised every bit of it from the moment you heard the gospel of grace until you came to accept the son of grace. God supervised every bit of it. And had not God supervised that, you could have never been born again. You didn't stumble upon Jesus you didn't stumble upon salvation. Salvation is carefully designed of Almighty God. And there are certain things that are absolutely essential if a man's to have a born again experience. They're so essential and so important until nobody's gonna accidentally find them or stumble upon them. You're gonna to have to hear the truth. And the entrance of God's word brings light and life and liberty. And without the preaching of God's word, you'll never have a genuine born again experience of the grace of God. All right, now you examine yourself by that standard. I've heard people people write to me and they said, now preacher, we'd like to take the time to write you this letter. And I get not letters sometimes, but epistles from people (laughs) as if I had all day long to read their lengthy epistles and in those lengthy epistles they tell me of dreams and i've read some of the most weird dreams you've ever read of or heard of in all your lifetime and when they get all that told to me they say "Uh, this must be my born again experience and surely i must be saved because i had this unusual dream Well, I'll concede some of them have had unusual dreams, but I wouldn't give you the snap of my finger for one of them. Did you hear what I said? I would not give you the snap of my finger for a dream as a source of salvation. Brother, if I've ever heard of sinking sand, that's it. If I've ever known an insecure foundation, that's it. And if I was you, I'd be afraid if you're basing your hope of eternal life on some unusual dream. Your foundation is sinking sand if I've ever seen it in my life. Don't you count on that. And then I've had other very unusual things related to me in personal conversation. And through the mail sometimes that some people bank their salvation upon these unusual Uh, Things that have happened in their lives. It's too risky my soul. That's too risky. I want to say to you that the only foundation that's really proper. And worthy to count upon. Is the foundation of the holy scriptures of God. Upon which I anchor my soul. In hope of the resurrection. Some golden daybreak. All other ground is sinking sand, matters not what it may be. Upon Christ, the solid rock I stand. And here's the assurance of my salvation, the word of God. Here's the way of my salvation, the word of God. Here's the evidence of my salvation, the word of God. Here's the guarantee of my salvation, the word of God. Right. 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 I've known other people that count upon their experiences. And their experiences is the only valid assurance that they're saved. Now, I would not discount your experience. Thank God if you had a tremendous experience. Praise God for it. I've heard some very unusual experiences. And I've known people who've had most unusual experiences. The Philippian jailer in the Bible had one, didn't he? He sure did. Not many people were converted as he was. Lydia, the seller of purple, had an unusual experience also, didn't she? She sure did. And Nicodemus is in the process, I believe, of receiving one right now in this chapter. And old Paul, I guess, is the most famous experienced preacher that's ever lived in all history. And brother, he had an experience that was out of the world. I've never heard of anybody in my life that had such an experience as the Apostle Paul. Have you? I didn't have that experience. And I doubt if there's anybody in this building that would dare stand up and match word for word and line for line your experience down beside the Apostle Paul. He could put us all in the shade, couldn't he? As far as experience is concerned. Now experience is all right, but experience is not salvation. Experience is the result. You see? Experience is the result. God gives you faith to believe. And you do that without feelings. You do that without shouting. You do that without experience. You say, Well, I just won't believe. I just can't believe until I feel something. And if I feel something in my soul, that makes me want to get up and shout like grandmother, then I'll know that I'm saved. You'll never get saved if that's your requirements. You're going to have to come to God and take Jesus just like a little child. And if God gives you a shout and experience, you say hallelujah. And if God does not give you a shout and experience, say hallelujah anyway. You're going to come to God and take Jesus like a child in simple faith. Now, And and the experience will be what God sees fit to give you, whether it's profound or whether it's not. Whether it's unusual or whether it's simple. You're going to take the experience God gives to you. And you're not going to tell God what you expect or what you are looking for. You're going to take what God gives to you in the way of experience. And experience is not salvation to begin with. It's a matter of faith in the finished work of our Lord upon Calvary for your sins that bring salvation to you. And once you believe and trust the Lord, then experience, assurance, feeling, life. A dead man doesn't feel anything until he becomes resurrected. Suppose that widow's son that they were carrying out to be buried and the Lord met the uh, uh, the funeral procession and interrupted. Suppose that boy said, "Well, I'm not coming out of the casket till I feel something." And he lay there in the casket, wide awake, having been resurrected by the Lord. But I'm not coming out till I feel something. I'm afraid I might die again, so I'll just stay in the casket. I have to feel something. Some people are just that simple. I believe when that old boy opened up his eyes and saw he's in that casket, they didn't have to caution him or coach him to get him out. I think he came out in a hurry, about as quick as I would have gotten out. I'm glad he'd have got out also. No, you're going to take Jesus by faith. And God will give you the experience, or he might not give you the experience. You're going to take Jesus by faith. Now, you learn that. Sometimes people come to church And they see uh, some of us rejoice. And Brother Melvin sings these good songs. and The trio and Brother Don and the others sing. And they rejoice. And and, uh, saints weep. And and there's a feeling. There's an emotion. And they get the idea that, that if they get saved, they've got to do the same thing. Well, not necessarily so. The most of the people at Tabernacle don't demonstrate in any degree. Not not uh, the most. Some do, most don't. Now, I, you, you're, you're the greatest hypocrite in the world if you point your finger at a man that doesn't shout and say, well, I don't know whether he's got salvation or not. He doesn't shout about it. You, you're foolish to draw that kind of conclusion. And then you that don't shout, you're just as foolish to point your finger at somebody who does and say, I wonder if they've got real salvation. No, we're different, you see. Well, some people... Uh, the, the, the temperament, the personality is different. And we have to learn uh, to, to, to absorb that difference and to permit that difference, you see. And after all, a demonstration, as I said a while ago, is not being born again at all. But if you're born of God's spirit, it's not whether you feel it or don't feel it, or whether you shout or don't shout, or whether you cry or don't cry. A lot of good preachers I know of preach quietly. I mean, good men. I've known some fine men that don't preach a bit like I do. I can't help it because I preach like I do. When I started out 30 or four years ago, I didn't say, Now, Lord, I-, I want you to teach me how to hold my hands nice. And I want you to teach me not to get excited. And I don't want to wear my voice out. I, I want to use my voice when I get to be an old man. I don't want to wear it out. And you keep me restrained, Lord, and let me be nice and quiet in the pulpit. Now, I didn't have sense enough to know what preaching was to make a deal like that with God. God saved me and called me to preach when I was 25 years old and sent me out, and I've been hollering ever since. And for me to preach like I preach now is as natural and as normal for me as it can be. I've always done it. And I guess I will till I die. I was at the hospital the other day. And one of my dear members was in the hospital. She may be here tonight. And I appreciate her concern. She said to me, Pastor, I'm worried about you. And I said, well, I appreciate your concern. I said, what is it that you're worried about? She said, I feel like you've got something wrong with your throat. And uh, she was serious. And I appreciated that concern deeply. And I said, well, ma'am, I sure have. I really got problems with my throat. And I wasn't trying to be smart. I'm telling you the truth. I said, I've had problems with my throat, and I've got problems with my throat, and I know it. And I guess you figured I was about to report to her that I'd been to the doctor, and I had a cancer of the vocal cords or cancer of the throat. Oh, not that at all. I said, my problem is mine just about worn out. And that's the truth. If I've got a cancer, I don't know it. If I've got calluses on my vocal cords, I don't know that. If I've got anything, any kind of a growth in my throat, I don't know it. And somebody, somebody called me on the phone the other day and said, Preacher, have you got a bad cold? I said, no, I haven't got a bad cold. I said, just preach it. I just preach all the time, and you get this kind of a voice. Now, if I didn't get loud and excited in my preaching... I wouldn't have this problem. I might be able to sing like Brother Melvin. Wouldn't that be a benediction? I'll have to postpone that, that's for sure, until I get to heaven. But anyway, uh, when God started me out, I started this way. And if I had to quieten down and be nice and sweet, why, you'd tie me up. You would might as well cut my throat and let me die and go on to heaven. I couldn't preach quietly. I've always done like I have. Now we need to recognize that uh, our demonstrations, our uh, manifestations are not salvation. Uh, uh, salvation is faith. And if you can be saved and not shout, I've got no complaint about that. If you can be saved and not cry, I've got no complaint about that. Not at all. But don't you have any complaint if I cry, I shout, you see, because some of us do. And if you can preach without getting excited, that might be better you might last longer but don't criticize me too much when i get excited because i've always done it this way always and it's hard teaching old dog new tricks i guess i'll die screaming repent repent i guess i will but that's normal and natural funny but here's one thing that's common now you get me here's something that's common to every man that's saved, and that common thing is faith in the crucified lamb of God. If you've been born again, we all have that. Yes, sir, every one of us can testify, my hope is built upon nothing less than Jesus' name and his righteousness, all other ground is sinking sand, and I do not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean upon Jesus' name. We can all say that, can't we? Whether we say it through dry eyes, or tear stained eyes whether we say it quietly or whether we shout it we could all say that my hope is built upon nothing less jesus is my hope and my salvation so the lord made no comment to nicodemus get born again by the water and by the spirit and get into the family of god he's saying the water is the word the spirit is the blessed holy spirit that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And I wish I could tear there a long time. And I, I, I haven't even got to my outline. Now, I must give you an outline tonight. And I've got to quit. I want to go all the way down to verse 16. But I can't. If I do, I never will get to the outline. But let me say a word about verse 6. This is so important. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And may I add, shall always be. And you get born again, that doesn't change that old flesh of yours one bit. It's still corrupt. It's still undependable. It's still vile. It's still uh, sinful and bent in the wrong direction. And your man come to me this morning and said, Preacher, you helped me a great deal in the sermon this morning. I preached about being enticed, drawn away by your own lust and enticed. You know, there's some people that give you the idea that when you get saved, you do not ever any other battles. You can drift into heaven upon a flower bed of ease and shout all the way in, no more temptations. It don't work out that way. When you get born again, you've got a battle that you'll fight until you breathe your last breath. And that battle that, you, that you've got is with that old flesh. That old flesh that you're in right now is the worst enemy you've got in the world and will always be till you die you'll not drop this robe of flesh till you breathe your last breath and that robe of flesh is a bitter enemy to the new man to the born again man and you get him born again he's still corrupt now I know what the Pentecostal people say the Pentecostal people say come back to the altar and get a second work of grace and some say come back and get a third work of grace and if you'll come and get second and third work of grace then inbred sin can be rooted out and the adamic nature can die the adamic nature will die but my soul that's just not scriptural i don't know any place in the bible where that idea is set forth in the holy scriptures i know of no place in the bible where god says come and get saved and then come and get another work or come and get a third work no the truth of the matter is You've got a battle with your flesh as long as you live. I've never been able to understand how these folk can preach sinless perfection and complete eradication of the Adamic nature and then talk about falling from grace in the same breath. That don't make sense. Now, if a man can't sin, how in the world can he fall from grace? Of all the people that would believe in eternal life, it ought to be the Pentecostal people. Well, they are the very ones that fight it worse than anybody else. And yet they say, I can't sin. The Adam nature's been rooted out. I've had two works of grace, and the old carnal nature's dead. And yet they say, I'm holding on. Maybe I might make it, but the old carnal nature's dead, but I'm holding on. Pray for me that i hold out faithful. That doesn't make sense. That's not being consistent. No, no, my friend. I wish I could report to you that my carnal nature was dead that I've been saved 47, 48 years, but I can't report to you that my carnal nature is dead. I can't report to you that my flesh no longer entices. I can't report to you that my sin nature is eradicated. Say, well, preacher, maybe you're not saved. Well, you waited too late, the devil beat you to that. He told me that a long time ago. (laughs) I believe I'm saved but I still have the old flesh to bother me and I guess I'll have it till I die but I have one great word of consolation to you and me Jesus said greater are they that be with us than they that be with them. and the Bible says the devil is a roaring lion but I'd like to report to you that he's a has been he's been defeated Amen. and I'm more than conquerors through him that loved me and died for me upon the cross, that I'm going to heaven. I may be battle-scarred, but I'm going in. That I may lose a battle, but the war is not over. And when the last, when the last battle is over, I know whose side I'm going to be on. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Now sometimes you wonder, I'm saved, I'm born again. Why is it that I think things that I'm ashamed of? Why is it that I say things that I have to swallow? Some of you in this building have said harsh words to your wife and kiddies. And when you got away from the house, you cried. You'd, some of you big men wouldn't cry before your wife and kiddies for anything. But when you got in your car and got up by yourself, you cried and said, Lord, why in the world did I say that to my wife and my children? And you were so ashamed. You know what I'm talking about. And things come to your mind, thoughts that are impure come to your mind and you say to yourself, I'm a saved man. And yet these things plague me and trouble me. Why, Lord? Why, Lord? Here's the answer. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Don't ever put any confidence in the arm of the flesh. It's corrupt. It's no good. It'll fail you. Don't put any confidence in it. But I want to say one other thing. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. And you can't undo either one. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.